Hey, before we get into today's discussion with Meg, I've just got a few announcements. Firstly, it's the first episode in February, and here at Outer Rim Reads, I will be donating $1 for every patron we have over at patreon.com slash outerrimreads to charity at the start of each month. Our wonderful patron, Devor, suggested the Against Malaria Foundation, an organization that works to prevent the spread of malaria by distributing insectide-treated mosquito nets to populations at high risk of malaria. By the time I'm recording this, we have eight patrons, so that means I've donated $8 to the Against Malaria Foundation. I have a channel on the patron-only Discord server where they can recommend and suggest charities to me, but any listeners can do so either by social media DM or by email to outerrimreadspod at gmail.com. Speaking of patrons, we have a new patron to welcome to the Outer Rim Reads team. So shout out to Doug for joining and supporting the show, as well as a huge shout out, as always, to our producer status patron at the Lothal tier, Simon. And really, a massive shout out to all of our patrons. Your continued support of the show means so much to me. I say it often, but it really does mean the world for you all to choose to financially support the show in the ways that you do. Thank you. If anyone else would like to join this fantastic group of patrons and get access to cool benefits like our patron Discord server, bonus content, exclusive merch, and more, you can head over to patreon.com slash outerrimreads. And if you're not able to support the show with your money, that's okay. A huge way to help the podcast is by leaving a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. That's one of the best ways to help more people find Outer Rim Reads. Now it's time for our Search Your Reading segment. Last episode's discussion question was, after the attempt on Fanry's life during the Grand Hunt, Rail reacts to the situation very emotionally, whereas Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan maintain their calm and show very little outward reaction. Is Rail justified in allowing himself to feel these emotions in a very human way? Or do the Jedi have a point, that opening oneself to emotion is a weakness? And we have a response from Simon on Twitter. He wrote, I think those emotions are definitely justified. For the Jedi, I think it's just important that they don't act out of those emotions. As long as they keep level-headed and make decisions that are not influenced by such emotions, it should be fine for Jedi. I think I would agree. Jedi can still allow themselves to experience emotion, but it's a matter of managing them and not letting them cloud their judgment, like Simon was saying. And stay tuned for our next discussion question at the end of this episode. With all that said, let's get into episode 29 of Outer Rim Reads. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 29 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In this episode, we'll be breaking down chapters 19 through 21 of Master and Apprentice, and I'm joined today by the associate editor at Utini, Meg Dowell. Meg, how are you doing today? Thank you so much for making the time to come on the show. Yeah, of course. Um, you reached out to me a while ago. Um... So it's really good to finally be here. And um, when you first uh, told me kind of what your show, what the format is and how, you know, you only did a couple chapters at a time. I'm so used to like one episode of a podcast is a book or like yeah. we do like <laughs> two or three. And I'm like, only a few, but <laughs> an so entire, yeah, but an entire season being one book allows for so much in-depth conversation and from what I listened to so far I'm just really looking forward to diving in so I'm glad to have you on that is kind of the that is the goal uh, you know we, I have the freedom here to be with my guests to be able to dive in and you know I, I do listen to podcasts as well that cover entire books and I love that format as well but you know it's a it's nice to take things you know take things slow every now and then uh, and Absolutely. talk about the, the themes and the characters um, but I'm glad to have you on the show could you give the listeners a little bit about your background with Star Wars and then specifically with Master and Apprentice. Of course. Um, so I've basically been 
a Star Wars fan forever. Um, and it wasn't my fault or my choice, but I'm okay <laughs> with it. Um, so my dad saw A New Hope in the theater when it first came out in 77. And I think he ended up seeing it 11 times, um, <laughs> just like all in a row because it was just that amazing. And like, it's hard to like for us to fathom like wh- how amazing that actually was because, you know, we Star Wars is just here. We're used yeah. to that. But like, you know, then that bit was that was Star Wars. That's what they had. And they'd never seen anything like that before. So that's, I mean, that's a lot of times to see Star Wars. But I mean, <laughs> hey, not a bad thing. Sure. Yeah. So I remember being six years old when The Phantom Menace came out and when we finally got it on video. Uh, my brother was really, really young, and it would just play in our house over and over and over. But I never got sick of it because even though like I wasn't like super into it, it just like became part of my existence um, because it was just <laughs> always playing. And there's still Jar Jar lines that are like burned into my brain forever. <laughs> um, so I, I think I must have been nine or ten years old when I finally... Uh, decided I want to watch all the movies like for myself like not just watching them with my dad or because he told me to but like I was interested (laughs) enough um so I he had he helped me like figure out which ones to watch and I watched you know four five six and then one two and then I remember running to him after Attack of the Clones ended and I was like I'm ready for the next one but Revenge of the Sith had not come out yet (laughs) um so my heart was broken and that's when I got into the books because he was like okay Mm. there aren't any more movies there weren't any shows at that time really um, not like we have now. So he's like, okay, so we're going to go to the library and see what Star Wars books they have. Not knowing that there were many, many Star Wars books. <laughs> so many. Um, and I believe Galaxy of Fear were the first ones that I picked up. I was a little old for them at that point. But like mm. the fact to me that Star Wars existed in books, which I never had known before, was like mind blowing. It just amazed <laughs> me. And I just, I, I love reading. I've always been a reader. And for a while like I kind of got away from Star Wars just growing up and just trying to figure out you know who I was what I wanted to care about um (laughs) but I did watch some of the Clone Wars as it was coming out I remember it kind of just being on and me kind of being interested but there was a lot going on so (laughs) um but I just I do remember like I really was into Ahsoka and really interested in her character and what her story was so when I found out that a novel was coming out that was just all about Ahsoka I was like I I mean. <laughs> I'm interested in Star Wars again suddenly. Um but it's always been part of my life. I've always been like trying to live by like by the principles of Star Wars. So like welcoming it back into my life mm. just like made me a whole person again. Um <laughs> and so I just I immediately started reading as many books as I could and just continued to do that and eventually through that reading all the books I kind of really was becoming frustrated because I couldn't figure out which books existed and like which ones to read. And it was really, I think it was around the time The Last Jedi was coming out. Um, I, I needed Star Wars more as much as possible because I couldn't more. wait. Because <laughs> I got my tickets in like October and I was like, how do I wait two months for this movie to come out? So I was trying to read all these books and just kept reading and reading and reading. And finally, I Utini had just... Um, kind of launched in 2017 and I eventually found it um, because their whole mission is helping people discover Star Wars books and figuring (laughs) yeah and figuring out like what to read or what is where does this book fall in the timeline or like what Star Wars books exist because like there are a lot of lists but like having a comprehensive one is like a huge deal and there really wasn't one until Utini Um, I'm just going to keep bragging on them because I can (laughs) please Um, feel free (laughs) yeah so I ended up reading uh, Master and Apprentice along with everyone else which in itself is an amazing experience because reading a book by yourself you kind of you enjoy it and you can kind of really be in the whole story but like I remember I hadn't started it yet um and people were posting in our Slack channel they were like this book is amazing you have to start reading (laughs) and like no you know no one's spoiling anything for anyone else but it was kind of like is it as good as they say it is and oh Oh, it is. Um, I've never, like, despite my Phantom Menace history, I've never been, like, a huge Qui-Gon fan. Um, sure. Like, I, I love the prequels. I am a prequel kid. It just is part of me. But, like, Qui-Gon, when I think of, like, my favorite character, my favorite Jedi, it's never been Qui-Gon Jinn. Um, but this story, first of all, Claudia Gray is just amazing Fantastic. in general. <laughs> um, but having a story of the relationship between this master and apprentice 
that we never knew we needed until we had yep <laughs> um just kind of like changed everything and i was like okay can we have like more stories like this and here you go so <laughs> it's such a such a compelling story and you're right where you know really the the only the only information that we got on Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan was, oh, we got in The Phantom Menace. And it's like, yeah. more, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially after, you know, the first time I finished this book, uh, I was left just want- wanting more. Um, yeah. You know, I Qui-Gon and I, I had always, like, respected him as a character, but I never really loved him until, yeah. you know, I became more mature in my fandom and kind of got to know his philosophies and the way he... Uh, you know, perceived the order and the Jedi and what it what it meant to be a Jedi and, and the Force and all that. And you know, he's one of my favorites now. And, and this book and Claudia's writing, uh, it's just a fantastic experience. Um, and there are some good Qui Gon moments uh, that we've got in these chapters oh, yeah. uh, ahead of us. Um, I could give my summary for chapter nineteen, and then we can get discussing. Sounds good. Aboard the Merricks, Pax argues that he and Rahara have no obligation to help the Jedi and could easily leave the system with their new prophet. However, Rahara insists that she likes to keep her promises and to see the arrangement through. Pax then grapples with the reality of his past, having been at the center of the Protocol droid's attention compared to his present struggles of adapting to the complexities of human nature. Rail runs into Captain Darren in the palace grounds, Frustrated at their minimal progress in thwarting the opposition and in his lack of friends in the palace, he reflects on his lone wolf nature. Although he had worked with Darren for years, there has always been a disconnect between them of his own making. Qui-Gon tries unsuccessfully to connect with Obi-Wan about his dream while they locate the lunar militant group they had scanned the other day. This is an interesting chapter. I feel like there is a theme here of the choice to adapt to the people and circumstances around us or to demand kind of the reverse, the people and the environment to change, to to fit our own needs. Um, Before we talk more about that with each kind of set of characters that this chapter dives into, do you have any general impressions about chapter 19? I really like how this chapter kind of really takes kind of everyone that's central to this part of the story and really shows you like this is what they're struggling with at a point where they're all about to change Mm. um it's really intense and i do like how you know there was kind of a short flashback with pax but it's so integral to you know what he's struggling with um it kind of really it doesn't take you out of the story really sure I, I this is a really good chapter <laughs> yeah it really is i i love that little flashback too uh about the protocol droids and i think it mentions like there's um there's like a g3po a z3po a b3po and i was like this is all i, I bet claudia writing this she was like all right so we have c3po how could i make other dro-? like she picked yeah. these letters specifically so they sounded like c3po it was <laughs> yeah. it was a nice little addition there yeah <laughs> but it starts out with pax pretty much trying to pick a fight with Rahara, you know, he's mm-hmm. complaining. And especially in this part of the book, in these kind of the chapters, uh, this chapter and, and the surrounding chapters, Pax is doing a lot of complaining. And when I first read this, I was like, okay, what's the point here? He's, it's just literally a couple of paragraphs about him trying to get a reaction out of Rahara. You know, what purpose does it serve? But Pax is trying to argue with Rahara about leaving the mission, about kind of just abandoning this pact they made with the Jedi to help them protect Fanry, to find the opposition. And we can see the conflict here between the way he was raised and the circumstances he finds himself in now, where with the protocol droid upbringing that he found himself in, there's no strategic advantage for them staying. You know, he's already got the profit from selling the colon crystals to the Zerka Corporation. Like, there's no amount of calculations that could show, hey, this is actually really great if we risk our lives to help these two guys we've only met recently and putting our lives in danger and finding a terrorist group. And we see how this conflicts with Rahara, where she's taking it from, you know, understandably a very human point of view, where, you know, she realizes that, okay, maybe it's not a strategically sound thing to keep our promise, but it's the right thing to do. And that just doesn't line up with Pax's logic. But, you know, to Rahara and to any human, we keep our promises. Right. And like, it's not Pax's fault, but he's so self-centered kind of because that's 
how he kind of had to be being cared for by droids and then realizing once that was over that like no one was going to care about him as much as they did yeah. or as he did. Um, you know, it's like you feel bad, but you also you're like, he's trying to figure it out. He's trying to adapt, but like he's just really not there. We can't really blame him. You know, it was like 15, 16 years of yeah. literally being the only human around and, and being attended to by these droids. And oh. we have this this passage here that I'll, I'll read from the text. Quote, he'd been the center of the droids universe, the one human on board amid 83 droids who had all been programmed to serve humans and other sentients and was thrown off by the fact that now he didn't seem to be the center of anyone else's universe. Mm -hmm. And paired with this later, quote, Pax didn't intend to change himself to fit the universe. If the universe wanted him to blend more, well, then it could change to fit him. And we can see why he thinks the way he does. You know, that's the yeah. point of this flashback when the droids were basically attending to him and finding him and, and um, kind of showing us the beginning of, of when he was discovered by these droids and then raised in the center of their attention. But if he wants to make a connection with Rahara, and we know he has feelings for her, you know, mm. deep down, he admitted it uh, kind of in his internal thoughts earlier in the book, it really isn't the best approach. You know, it, if there's a theme in kind of relationships that we've discovered in this book so far, it's that... It needs to be like a give and take, like a mutual growth, just as it needs to be with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, just as it even needed to be with like Obi-Wan and his Viractal, and Pax is kind of yet to reach that understanding. Communication is important, <laughs> and all of these characters just are struggling so hard to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's I, I like that the there's like these common themes in the book that manifest differently within each, kind of each different mm -hmm. uh, character and each each pair of characters, but it's a very real struggle, and and it's just fascinating to see how they each come to terms with it in their own way, if they do at all. You know, it's not looking yeah. like. Pax is going to reach that understanding no. anytime soon. You know, he's very he's thinking very much in absolutes where it's like, I'm staying the way that I am. Yeah. Um, and much to his uh, continued displeasure, the Jedi show up because they have to <laughs> find some terrorists. So, uh, so his bad day continues to worsen. So the next scene of this chapter takes us to the palace grounds where Rail runs into Captain Darren and this interaction kind of annoyed me in a way and I always have to keep reminding myself about the circumstances that Rail is in you know where the girl that is at the the center of his life pretty much you know that he works to protect every single day her life is at risk you know they're no closer to finding the opposition um, who is responsible for this and he kind of takes it out on on Darren a little bit where I think Captain Darren was just trying to rendezvous with him to update him on his findings and Rail is like you know, it doesn't take two of us to search the grounds, man. Maybe you're not doing your job right, which it seems kind of unfair to Darren. You know, he's just doing his best um, and Rail is just kind of dumping his frustration on him. <laughs> but we kind of see the theme that began in the first part of this chapter with Pax kind of show itself within Rail's own conscience where he's reflecting that after all these years, like he should be buddy-buddy with with Darren. You know, they've worked together closely for, for years, but that's just not the person that he's become. And there's this uh, part of the uh, text here that I'll, I'll read uh, where Rail is thinking back to a conversation he had with Dooku where, quote, Dooku had told Rail many times that his isolation was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Do you not keep your own customs rather than adopt those of the Jedi around you? Do you refuse to explain yourself more often than not? Why then does it surprise you that you stand apart from the rest? And Rail's kind of chewing on this where, you know, like Pax, he's choosing the latter, that he's comfortable where he is in the way that he lives his life. But he also thinks to himself, quote, the solitude kept its sharp edge always. And so we see kind of he's realizing that he is comfortable where he is, but he realizes also uh, on the flip side that he's alone. Yeah. And there is a contrast there, too, with Qui-Gon where... Qui-Gon is struggling because he is forever bonded with someone else yeah. that he cannot, you know, they just can't seem to, you know, sync up. And here's Rail who is kind of craving that, but also is like, but is this where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing? It's tricky, you know, because yeah. he, he, he doesn't have that, you know, as much as Fannery is close to him, you know, he has a good relationship with Fannery. He's mm -hmm. disclosed a lot of kind of personal things to Fannery. Uh, at the end of the day, she is the princess, and he's the Lord Regent. So there is always that separation by the nature of their roles, yeah. you know, where she's royalty and 
you know, they have to maintain that, you know, she can't be as close to him as Nimpiana was, his former apprentice. It's just not supposed to be that way between them. And so you're right. He, I, I would not be surprised if he's actually kind of craving that relationship that he sees maybe that Qui-Gon has with Obi-Wan, although tense, <laughs> although tense, uh, but he just can't have it because of how he was brought up by Dooku in, in, in the Jedi Order. And we even see Captain Darren here. You know, we haven't really got a lot about him in this book, and it's kind of been a side character here, but we see even he is faced with the same choice. You know, he's telling Rail that he's been following all these procedures, you know, checking security recordings, reviewing information from search and probe droids, and then Rail asks him what he feels is going on. He says, quote, What does your gut tell you? Forget the evidence or politics or anything else. I want instinct. After a long pause, Darren said, I obey procedures, sir, not instincts. And I feel like this is kind of like a two-sided issue here. You know, on one hand, Rail is offering Darren the opportunity to kind of take a step out of his comfort zone and to look at the situation outside of what he's used to, you know, outside of the lens of these procedures. But on the other hand, it could also be perceived as Rail choosing to stay in his comfort zone and trying to force Darren out. It was an interesting dynamic here where they're both choosing to, to remain where they're comfortable, but it's not really serving the circumstance as best as it could. Yeah. Claudia Gray is, I mean, great in general, but she's really good at within the same chapter, like every single interaction kind of leads to the same conclusion where it's just people are trying as hard as they know how, you know, to move forward and mm. to make progress in these relationships. And they're just it's not working. Yeah, but um, <laughs> yeah, but it just it really strengthens, you know, it really hits home what she's trying to say. And like, but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel repetitive, which is just, that's why this, one reason why this book is so great is that it takes you on this journey and like continues to remind you, you know, what these issues are without making it too much. Yeah, for sure. I, I like how you're, you know, you said that, it, you know, we're not reading kind of like the same thing, even though it's yeah. kind of like the, this overarching theme, it is still through the lens of each of these individuals, each of their experiences, their circumstances, their upbringings, you know, and it's very, you know, it's the same, but it's also unique. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she finds the way to write that in, in what I think is a very, very beautiful way. I wanted to get your thoughts on how this scene with Rail closes, because, you know, he, know that, he knows that Qui-Gon is up on the moon trying to help solve this problem with the opposition, but it seems that even still, he's kind of turned this into a personal vendetta between him and Halen Azuka, the leader of the opposition, where he's thinking to himself, quote, Halen's opposition needed to be hit hard, harder than Qui-Gon Jinn would ever allow. That was Avaros's job. And my question to you, should we be slightly worried here, where you know, do, the, do these circumstances call for this kind of, like, extreme thinking? You know, we've already seen Rail forsake much of what he's been taught by the Jedi, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it may not really be harmless, but here, you know, he, he's thinking in very kind of extreme and, and absolute terms that she needs to pay for what she's done, and maybe he doesn't care if he goes farther than he should. Yeah, I mean, we've seen already in this book that the extreme is often not the right way to go, and... It is a little worrisome, um, and that really stands out to me just because it has been a long time since he, since Rail has really been considered someone who regularly follows like the Jedi customs and yeah. their kind of their path and their way that they think, and that's not typically a way that a Jedi would think about this kind of situation. Yeah, he he's just taking it personally. He it's it's definitely a case of his emotions and how worried he is and how frustrated he is definitely leading to thoughts like that and you know it's not a bad thing that Qui-Gon is there I feel like <laughs> because I mean maybe he needed a reminder that like you can technically follow your own rules to a point yeah. but not take it that far because Qui-Gon is kind of like he's not like Obi-Wan who's very <laughs> stuck to the rules but he's not as extreme as Rail is being so there I think there does need to be that middle ground at least and uh, yeah. maybe he just needs to be reminded of that. For sure, you know, and and we did see, you know, him and Qui Gon kind of come to a, a personal understanding and kind of their struggles uh, in the past, and I think mm -hmm. one of the previous chapters. So they've been able to find common ground and to be able to, you know, see where each other is coming from. So hopefully, Rail can kind of take a note out of Qui Gon's book, where <laughs> where it's you know you don't have to follow the rules, you know, word by word, but also they don't need to be 
perhaps broken to the extent that Rail might be thinking yeah. that he would like to break them. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it kind of reminded me of of Anakin. Uh, I've drawn some parallels between Rail and Anakin in this book so far, and I kind of thought where Anakin was telling Dooku, like, you, "You'll pay." For the Jedi you killed today, Dooku, I think, in Attack of the Clones. And, mm-hmm. you know, Rail's thinking, Halen's going to pay for this. And oh, yeah. uh, we kind of see his emotions boiling to a point where I hope it's not going to be past a, a point of no return. But it's kind of, it's begging the question for sure. I, you know, I never really thought of that Anakin parallel until you just said that. But now <laughs> I can't stop thinking about Rail being like, an adult, like older, older version of Anakin, if Anakin would have stayed a Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> and just being still this emotional mess sometimes, that's fun. That's a fun thing to yeah, think about. I, mean, <laughs> I think they, they do have a, I think Anakin joined when he was older. I think Anakin was what, nine when he joined the order and mm-hmm. Rail I think was like five. So they both like were removed from their families at an older age and yeah. it's, it, they have a lot of parallels. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just uh, hopefully Rail doesn't end up like Anakin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the chapter closes out. We're in Obi-Wan's point of view here. They are in the Merricks. They're kind of flying low over the moon checking their scanners to find this group that they had picked up on the scanners earlier. And there's this brief exchange between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan where Qui-Gon's trying to open up to Obi-Wan about the dream he had. He's convinced it was a vision about the coronation. And we can tell like from his demeanor that he's very nervous about this. You know, he knows that Obi-Wan's very by the book. And here he's trying to open up to him about very like a vague, symbolic, maybe dream. But he values Obi-Wan's opinion, which is why he's trying to strike this conversation, but Obi-Wan's response isn't really great. Um, I'll I'll read it for us just really quick. Obi-Wan's thinking to himself after Qui-Gon's kind of asking for his opinion, quote, Obi-Wan figured that if Qui-Gon was finally asking for his opinion, he could have it. Surely we have more pressing concerns, better ways of searching for an answer. Dream analysis would be guesswork at best. And to that, Qui-Gon frowns. And... It wasn't really helpful, a really helpful response by Obi-Wan where, you know, he's choosing to remain in his comfort zone here like everyone else before him in this chapter where you touched on this earlier where he's he's very by the book. You know, he, he's used to the factual, to the tangible. So he's not even entertaining Qui-Gon's thoughts here about dreams and visions. And, you know, sure, on one hand, he, he is being honest with Qui-Gon, yeah. but I feel like it might have been better to try to meet Qui-Gon where he was at instead of just shutting the door. <laughs> yeah, he could have tried a little, just a little. And I, I sense there too that he is, you know, he's also harboring frustration. Um, They're mm. both frustrated just because of all that's going on and they can't connect. And then Qui-Gon not telling him about trying to keep things from him. And I really sense that he is, you know, just remaining closed off as much as he could because yeah. he's like, if Qui-Gon's not going to be my master anymore or if this isn't going to work out, then what's the point? And that makes yeah. me feel really sad for him. <laughs> It's it's so sad to read. Um, you know, uh, I've mentioned this before on the show where it's like we have the privilege of being able to read both of their point of views where we know they both care about each other, but yeah. they're just not very vocal about it. And Obi-Wan's preparing himself as if tomorrow could be the day that Qui-Gon will be like, all right, peace out. I'm going to the council. Have fun Aww. with your new master. It's it's sad to read. It, yeah, it, it really is. But the chapter ends on kind of uh, a better note for them because, you know, they do pick up this group on their scanners and Qui-Gon saying, you know, this is a job for me and my apprentice. And, you know, Obi-Wan feels some pride there where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, even though they just had that very, uh, very tense interaction, although a little brief as it was um, moments ago, you know, Qui-Gon doesn't mind jumping into the middle of a military force with him. You know, he, he still wants yeah. to, to go on these missions with him and he still trusts him where it's like these kind of small moments. Mm-hmm where the situation kind of calls for them to work together that we can know it kind of at the end of the day, they can do at least what is need- needed to be done to get the job done. That kind of Obi-Wan feeling pride at Qui-Gon knowing that this would take the two of them. It was a better taste in our mouths yeah. to end the chapter. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we'll get into how intense this next uh, scene is in, in chapter 20. Do you have any closing thoughts on 19 before we move on? Um... I do not. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I can. Uh, I'll. I'll give my summary for chapter twenty, and then we can talk all about uh, jumping into the middle of a militant force. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Qui Gon and Obi Wan jump into the middle of the militant group they had picked up on their scanners. 
As the Jedi begin to engage with their opponents, they are bewildered to find that their lightsabers are ineffective against the soldiers' personal shields. Forced into a hurried retreat, Qui-Gon tries to distract the attackers while Obi-Wan makes a run for the Merricks. Even though he manages to split up the soldiers with a felled tree and incapacitates a few of them, the remaining force instead chooses to pursue Obi-Wan, who is exposed as he flees. Realizing the Merricks is dangerously vulnerable to blaster fire, Obi-Wan tells Pax and Rohara to pull away and find cover for his master. Obi-Wan takes the opportunity to escape deeper into the forest. Although he temporarily loses his pursuers, the Padawan runs into a greater danger as a giant sinkhole caves in beneath him. This is... I feel like this chapter and the next are very fast-paced, very action-packed, a very different pace to the book than what we've gotten so far. Do you have any general impressions about kind of this into the fray chapter before we talk about the details? Well, it does include one of my favorite parts of this book, which is Qui-Gon apologetically um, <laughs> knocking down a tree, which is just as Qui-Gon as it gets. And yeah. this chapter really kind of shows how Claudia Gray can combine action with character development so unbelievably well like how does she do this i don't understand um it's it's it is really fast paced but when you see these characters interacting in this tense moment because when you think about it when you're in like a situation like this there is no like sugarcoating anything like whatever you say yeah. however you act that is who you are and so really intense scenes like this are a really great opportunity to show who these characters really are and how they really feel about each other and mm -hmm. it's really well done yeah, I, I love that point where it's kind of like in the heat of the moment and, mm -hmm. you know, where it's really do or die. You know, every action matters. You know, we we do see kind of someone's true character kind of show, show through. And I love what you had mentioned about Qui-Gon being apologetic for chopping down <laughs> the tree. And there are actually a few moments like that in this chapter. That's kind of one of the one of the themes of the chapter that I wrote down is, is Qui-Gon's, uh, <laughs> the way that he's thinking to and regarding these trees uh, and the forest around him and very consistent with what we got from an earlier part in the book where he was in the Jedi Temple Gardens and really feeling the living force in each of these plants. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we see that play out uh, in this hectic chapter. Um, it really very much starts out as a hello there kind of moment where they just jump right into the middle of uh, <laughs> some 14 <laughs> attackers. And really the, the takeaway from this engagement, you know, they're instantly just blaster fire, deflecting and, you know, engaging with these soldiers. The big takeaway from this is that their lightsabers don't work against their shields. They literally bounce off the shields and Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, they've never seen anything like this before. And, you know, when I read this for the first time, I was like, uh, sorry, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, and it's, it was really a, a jarring moment where it's also kind of comical too, where Qui-Gon takes a slash at one, uh, you know, after he realizes that he's not going to surrender and, you know, his lightsaber bounces off and then you know, he kind of thinks like, uh, sir, what? And then he tries again and he bounces off again. Uh, it was just, what was your kind of initial take on this? It's nothing like we've ever seen before. It's a really good example of taking away the one thing that makes a central character to a scene maybe possibly overpowerful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it really is like the fact that they've never seen this before and are able to kind of like adapt as quickly as they do really it just shows that like Jedi are trained to this to do this very specific thing where like if you lose the one thing that makes you almost guaranteed to win whatever battle you're in, then you really have to like figure out how to backtrack and still make it work. Yeah, and, and they really have to think quickly on their feet. You know, instantly Qui-Gon realizes that, you know, we can only deflect for so long before one of us is going to make a mistake. And so he, he kind of tells, yells for Obi-Wan to fall back. And we, we get this moment from Obi-Wan where uh, he's trying to argue with Qui-Gon about, you know, no, I want to stand and fight kind of thing. And you're like, even in a life and death moment, Obi-Wan's kind of seeing the need to needlessly risk his life. Like, no, like, you know, we, we kind of see some hubris and some arrogance. Like, no, I can do this and you know thankfully he does fall back into the forest and 
um, you know, while Obi-Wan is retreating, we, we get this, you know, like you, like you were mentioning where, you know, when they take away the one thing, like your one advantage, uh, or one of your biggest advantages, how do you respond? And the, there's this passage from the text that says, quote, he refocused on this attack, one against 14, no offensive weapon. Therefore, Qui-Gon's best tactic was to use these fighters against one another. And when I read this, I was like, all right, this is what adapting to the situation looks like. Where right. it, coming from a chapter where no one wants to change, no one wants to adapt to the circumstances, you know, th- this is Qui-Gon's kind of like hold my beer. Um, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, like you had mentioned with his regard you know his apologetic feelings towards uh kind of cutting the trees you know Qui-Gon does slice through this tree with an apologetic thought and earlier you know when he was slicing through the underbrush to get to these soldiers you know he was thinking I'm going to come back later and do like a healing meditation in the forest and it's just it's incredible that even in the middle of this fight that Qui-Gon is is placing this hand on the tree like gently easing it into death and i'm just like this like you said earlier this is so qui-gon like, is. for a tree for a tree in a life or death situation <laughs> yeah and like i mean i get it like he's he's so in tune with the living force and like it's like he wants the tree to like know that like it's going to serve an important purpose which is you know qui-gon do your thing but also come on <laughs> <laughs> but also is it the time <laughs> And uh, we kind of get this uh, comical scene where, you know, he's tried to distract these soldiers, but they decide to chase after Obi-Wan. And, um, you know, he's seeing Obi-Wan run to the Merricks and this group of soldiers just charging after him. And it kind of reminded (laughs) me from, uh, it kind of reminded me of the scene from Pirates of the Caribbean where Jack Sparrow was like running from the entire army to his ship. (laughs) um, Oh, man. The, the next scene takes us into Obi-Wan's point of view where, you know, he does end up telling them, all right, this isn't working, find another spot to pick up Qui-Gon. And we kind of see the flip of the situation where Qui-Gon initially told them, all right, go pick up Obi-Wan, I'll handle them. And now Obi-Wan's like, all right, go pick up Qui-Gon, I'll handle them. It's like a little bit of cat and mouse. And they're like, yeah. they're both trying to save each other, uh, save uh, the other and refusing to save themselves. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like that's, and you know, that's kind of like a small confirmation that they do care <laughs> like about yeah. each other, <laughs> which is just, in a very kind of comical way here, yeah. but also <laughs> life or death. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so evident that they they do have this bond and they do want to connect and it's just you know they're still trying to figure out how to do that and so every time this happens you're like I know that you could do better and they're trying and it, it sometimes it like takes battles like this like for them to really realize you know I do care I just haven't figured out how to yet yeah. or how to show that yet so very much like Pax you know Maybe he wants to care for Rahara in a, in a deeper way, but maybe he just doesn't know how to. It's just like the the fabric that kind of like ties all these characters and these stories and uh, and their developments together. I, I, lo- I love it. The touches yeah. by Claudia. So but I, I did wonder to myself about Obi-Wan's thought here, where he's thinking, he thought to himself kind of, all right, they're going to go pick up Qui-Gon. He's going to be okay. Now I'm going to try to get myself to safety. And I was wondering, is this selfless or selfish because the other moment Qui-Gon was going out of his way to make sure that he distracted the attackers from Obi-Wan and we see here Obi-Wan here is like Qui-Gon will be able to handle himself now it's time to save my own skin and what was your your take on that was it kind of like a flip was it him caring I'm just very in these moments I I kind of have to suspect that you know even if he might be caring for Qui-Gon like he also there there might still be that dissonance in some way. What was your take on that? Yeah, I do sense a little bit of that. But also, just like, we just saw that, like, Obi-Wan realized that Qui-Gon trusts him, right? Mm, so yeah, part of me yeah. wants to believe that maybe Obi-Wan trusts Qui-Gon to be able to handle what he needs to handle. Yeah. And so that he can go off and, you know, make sure that he's okay. It could be that. It could be a combination mm. of both a little bit. I love that. I yeah. love that. <laughs> yeah, I, I always try to believe that, that people are doing the right thing if they can. <laughs> <laughs> that is the right thing to try to do. And I, that that is a very good take. And that might be, that might have just changed the way that I perceive that situation oh. where it's like that we see that trust going the other way. I, I love that. That was a really great point. That was a really great point. And I wish the uh, the chapter ended on a great point for Obi-Wan, but, uh, you know, oh, the, no. the, he runs deeper into the forest and all of a sudden the sinkhole just 
opens up beneath him and he's able to grab onto like a, I think it's a branch jutting out from a log and kind of like hanging on for dear life. Mm-hmm. Um, as this sinkhole just keeps caving in deeper and deeper. Talk about a, a cliffhanger or a sinkhole <laughs> hanger. Uh, <laughs> to the chapter. <laughs> and that is how chapter 20 ends. <laughs> Very uh, a very intense way to end an already intense chapter. The action kind of keeps going into chapter twenty one, so I'll give my summary for that, and then we can just continue this roller coaster ride. Perfect. <laughs> Through the forest, Qui Gon senses his apprentice is in great danger. He hurriedly makes his way through the forest to Obi Wan before the attackers can reach him, jumping from tree to tree. Upon reaching Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon deactivates his lightsaber and begins to pull his Padawan out of the sinkhole, while using the Force to avoid the soldier's blaster fire. However, even though he is able to save Obi-Wan from falling to his death, the danger is not over as they are surrounded by the black-clad attackers. Back to back, the Jedi parry bolt after bolt with no avenue of escape. Before all is lost, however, a new group arrives, outnumbering the soldiers and forcing them to retreat. As the dust settles, the Jedi and the newcomers agree to lower their weapons. A woman, clad in green, strides forth and identifies herself as the leader of the opposition, Halen Azuka. We'll get to the twist that was the end of this chapter uh, <laughs> after the further roller coaster ride that we're on. Um, do you have any general impressions about chapter 21 before we dive in? I remember the first time reading this chapter, not seeing that twist coming. And that, that's another thing that, you know, I'm just going to keep talking about how great Claudia Gray is because Feel she free. is. <laughs> and we're getting more of her in less that are very, very soon, Yeah, and, which is a great thing. But she's very good at throwing in these really like twists that maybe not may not be huge every time but they're so unexpected that you're kind of just like oh I definitely can't stop reading now fantastic (laughs) (laughs) really I mean I I love the way that she's been able to I love the way that she's been able to kind of balance uh you know the story being kind of like having mystery elements to it you know kind of Mm -hmm. thriller-esque chapters having very appropriate and not out of place plot twists of uh, you know yep. it, it it keeps moving the story forward in compelling ways and and this is no different the beginning of probably one of the most important moments in this book um but before we get to that before we get to Halen showing up at the end of this chapter you know we do get uh, Qui-Gon desperately trying to get to his apprentice and you know you had mentioned uh, earlier how you know Qui-Gon you know, reaching out to uh, through the forest to these trees. At at some point, it does get a little bit extra, and uh, I kind of reached that point in my understanding of it when you know he's jumping from tree to tree, and I think the first branch that he jumps on uh, to to kind of like support his his initial landing, uh, he quote silently thanked the tree for using its branch, <laughs> and I was like, all right, all right, I you know. I was I was giving you a lot of leeway so far, Qui Gon. Is this extra right now? Like, part of me is like, all right. If I was sitting at a desk and someone just jumped off of my head to propel themselves <laughs> forward, like I would want them to, you know, kind of acknowledge they did that. But at the same time, it's like, all right, Qui Gon. Like, are you going a little bit too far here? <laughs> it just he's constantly like he knows where he he has his mind in a certain place all the time. And, you know, it's one reason why Obi-Wan cannot stand him sometimes at this point, because he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> it's just, it's, uh, you know, he is consistent. I cannot fault him. <laughs> he is consistent at least, but it's like, all right, your, your Padawan's about to, about to fall to his death. You surely there are other <laughs> things to think of than like, hey, sorry, dude. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I do love in this moment when Qui-Gon reaches Obi-Wan. The selflessness that we've seen from Qui-Gon, you know, first he's displaying it towards the trees <laughs> and the plants around him, and now he's displaying it to Obi-Wan, where there's 11 soldiers still firing at them, you know, in the midst of him trying to save Obi-Wan, but he goes to deactivate his lightsaber and just focuses solely on saving Obi-Wan, and he's literally just relying on the Force to dodge the blaster bolts, where it's like, that's risky business, but yeah. all that matters to him here is saving his Padawan. It's just so impressive, time and time again, uh, what he's doing. 
Yeah, he definitely is able to focus really well on that one thing that he needs to do. And I mean, that's you hear like masters selling their apprentices all the time, like focus, like focus on this Mm. one thing, focus on what you're doing right now. And like, you know, despite his flaws and his obsession with uh, apologizing to trees, um, (laughs) he is he has mastered the art of like, this is what I need to accomplish right now and nothing else matters. You know, even if it means putting himself in danger, you know, he yeah. he is removing one of his best defenses, probably his best defense in this moment uh, by deactivating his lightsaber. But you know, I, I do love also what we get from Obi-Wan here when he sees Qui-Gon reaching down into the sinkhole to kind of pull the log that Obi-Wan is grabbing onto to, to pull him out of the sinkhole. And Obi-Wan's yelling for him to, to save himself, to, you know, leave me, save yourself, master. Yeah. All the tension that we've gotten in this book, in all the ways it's manifested, when it comes down to it, in, the, in these tense situations, in these dire situations, like you're saying earlier, like people's true character shows, and Obi-Wan here is like, you know, we, we see his care for Qui-Gon's show where he's mm. like, you know what, I need him to save himself. Only one, like, he, he didn't want both of them to die in this moment. You know, when he sees that one of them could easily survive, and he's trying to tell Qui-Gon, get out of here, Master, like, save yourself. It, it was just, it was like a heartwarming moment uh, in this very tense situation. Yeah, and it's like, this is the moment where Obi-Wan is like, you know, despite how frustrated I am with him, and despite, you know, not understanding him all the time, like, he is my master, we are bonded, and I do care. Yeah. And... We're like watching Obi-Wan grow up in these pages and it's amazing. Like we never thought that we'd get, you know, a young Obi-Wan struggling just to just basically communicating with his master and like we're watching him grow into the person we know he will become. And it's like, this is fantastic. It this really is, is great. <laughs> we need more of this, please. There's been some moments where Qui-Gon has realized the same thing where he sees Obi-Wan you know, having the capacity to be like the Jedi Knight that he knows he can become down mm-hmm. the road. And, and so there there are sprinkled moments like that. Yeah. And I love it. And here it's more of like, a, you know, the reader is able to appreciate it. And I, and I love that because uh, it can get very taxing for every interaction between them to be like just bickering, you know, needlessly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so moments like these, even if it's at potentially Obi-Wan's expense, if he's about to fall to his death, uh, you know, we still love him when, uh, you know, he's able to, to show that kind of Qui-Gon-like compassion here. Uh, yeah. I love it. So Qui-Gon does save him. Uh, he's able to pull him out and, you know, he, he thinks to himself, quote, out of the saucepan and into the stove, uh, he says, because uh, you know, they still have these attackers to deal with. And, you know, it's pretty bleak at this moment because, you know, even though they have their lightsabers, they're deflecting. Again, they can only do that for so long before one of them makes a mistake. And I think this is the scene that we, uh, that, that was the cover for the special, the celebration edition, the special edition where mm-hmm. they're back to back facing these these attackers. W- am I right there? Is that, uh, is that the scene that we're getting? I'm pretty sure. That's like, a great cover. Oh. <laughs> uh, it is so good. Like, I don't- I don't have it. Nice. I don't have it, and I'm still mad about that. Oh, I know. I. I mean, I. I did get to the master and apprentice party a little bit late. Um, yeah. Maybe one day on eBay, yeah. I'll find. Oh <laughs> yeah. Because it is a brilliant, brilliant cover, and, it is. and it's cool to see like the moment in the text where you're like this is it. Yes. <laughs> um, and to their credit, also uh, we realize that Pax and Rohara are trying to lower the Merricks to help, but their ship is like it's small enough where the blaster fire could damage it. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm reading this, I kind of for, we kind of forget about Pax and Rohara. You know, they're not here, but we yeah. do get this moment where they are trying. Um, and when it's looking pretty dire. Obi-Wan decides to ask, uh, kind of lightheartedly, to, you know, asking Qui-Gon, you know, do you, do you mind telling me why you always kept me studying the lightsaber basics? Um, and I'm, like, thinking, you know, just as much as Qui-Gon, like, you know, thanking the trees, like, is this the time, you know? <laughs> like, I, like, maybe pick something to, like, reminisce on or something positive, but he's like, you mind telling me why you've been holding me back? <laughs> Oh, I love it because he's like, okay, if this is the last thing I ever say to him, I want him to know how frustrated I am. Oh, Obi-Wan, come on. It's like, Abby, come on, man. <laughs> oh, oh. It, was, it was good. Uh, but, you know, before Qui-Gon can answer, uh, the attackers are driven away by this arriving group. And, you know, the Jedi have been rescued here. But, it, you know, there is kind of like this tense scene initially where they're kind of at a standoff, like they're hiding behind their log and, and they're being asked to like drop your lightsabers. 
and Qui-Gon's handling it very coolly, um, you know, and he's able to maneuver an agreement where, all right, we're not going to surrender, but I don't want to hurt you, so let's all just put down our weapons together. You know, very diplomatic. Uh, the negotiator, uh, I guess we know where Obi-Wan got that from. And when they lower their lightsabers and the, the group lowers their blasters, they peer over the log and see that these humans who have greeted them are clad in green. And my first thought was, this has got to be the opposition. Like they saw, like there was a previous security recording where these members, kind of these people in the security recording who did this political demonstration were clad in green, um, which suggests maybe that the ones clad in black, like we saw, you know, one of them at the Grand Hunt kind of tethering this, the, the crab droid might be a different faction. Uh, I want to know your thoughts, because like, it, it doesn't seem that this might be another faction of the opposition, because they probably wouldn't have driven the other group away with blasters if they were. So right here, like everything just got a little bit more, or a lot a bit more complex, where it's like, all right, you know, who's who, what's going on? Uh, this was a, a jaw-dropping moment, uh, in, in a way. Yeah, it's like you, you know, when you're when you're Star Warsing, I guess. Um, it's, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's it's very easy to like. I think really simplify it and think like there are two sides to every conflict, you know. And there are two. There's like in A New Hope, there's the Empire and there's the Rebellion. Like there's two sides opposing each other, you know. And it doesn't get more complicated than that. But I think what the books do really well and what they've been doing really well in canon these past few years, especially is showing that like even if there is a conflict between two groups there are people in the middle there are people mm -hmm. who oppose you know one side but not the other one and there are people who are kind of like i'm not on any side i just don't want this fighting going on or something like that and you really like get that sense that like things are so much more complicated and star wars is not simple and this is a really good example of that where it's like you see one conflict and the jedi are fighting off one group which in turn get pushed off by someone else and you're like i don't understand this um <laughs> and that's it, it's another you know it's yeah. another way to really get you to keep turning pages no oh, it's very yeah. it's a very good strategy effective strategy by claudia especially mm -hmm. given how she ends this chapter uh, I'll, I'll read it here uh, where this woman has approached them clad in green and she's clearly the leader of this group and she says quote my name is Halen Azuka she said and gestured at the people around her we're the opposition and we'd like to know why we're being framed Oof. what what a way, a way to end a chapter to oh. end a chapter <laughs> oh. <laughs> like like you know what you had already said about you know all right there's people in the middle on the, on one side you know like there there this is so complex you know not everything is black and white here and now where Claudia's like yeah you know we have that and also the ones who you thought have been the bad guys maybe they're not actually the bad guys it's like wow <sighs> just <laughs> this twist <laughs> I I love it so much and like I forgot okay it's been it's been a while since I'd read this book right so when I was reading it again. <laughs> to do this I got to that part and I was like okay I am familiar with this story I know what happens how did I forget about this um <laughs> but it's so good and like it's you know you don't see it coming the second time or the third time however many times I've read this book and so it's it's that well done where like it's so it's such a surprise that you just every single time you're like oh okay I got it what's going on here <laughs> it's just such such a a, a good piece of storytelling by Claudia. And, and, and in fairness, that is all we're given to end this chapter. So maybe Halen is lying. There yeah. are always certain points of views that are approaching these situations. Uh, so there is more to be learned. But from anything we might have expected for the end of this chapter, it probably was not that. <laughs> and even, yeah. you know, reading it again for this season, there are certain parts of the plot that I've forgotten, you know, as I'm reading through. And this part will always just stand out as like, oh, wow. Okay. Uh, you know, if we yeah. already thought this was a complex situation, it just got, you know, it was taken to the next notch here by Claudia, you know, like, you know, who's leading the other group? You know, why are they framing the opposition if that's the case? And, you know, yet again, she leads leaves us with more questions than answers, and I love it. <laughs> Have we mentioned enough times yet on this episode how amazing Claudia Gray is? I don't think so. <laughs> Let's do it again. Pour Claudia it on. Claudia Gray, <laughs> you are amazing. That uh, is all. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, enough said. That is... 
the end of really a riveting set of chapters. Meg, thank you for being here to to take this roller coaster ride. It, it, you know, it was a very different pace of the book than what we've gotten so far, but she wrote it fantastically and we get that twist at the end. As we close up today, what are your thoughts on on kind of like these three chapters looking back? It's been a ride. <laughs> It really has. Again, just like the the amount of character development on all fronts that we get in just these three chapters. And this is like pretty far into the book. And the fact that character development like is it's not everyone's strong suit I mean it's it's part of every story but like a lot of authors don't always like they kind of struggle sometimes too with pacing and doing it um and these chapters are such a great example of how like you can bring a character closer and closer and closer to getting to um their point of changing or realizing something without like rushing it or without like hitting home the same point too many times in the same exact way like in these three chapters we get these same messages over and over but they're presented to us so differently and with the different characters all and it's all woven together you know it's not like too disjointed so yeah it's just this is such a good story i'm so glad that i got to read it again (laughs) i'm very glad that uh that you've been able to come on and talk about it you know um i do appreciate how you know we can tell how much claudia cares about the characters that she's writing but like you're saying where she's able to craft them kind of like in their own mold in their own way she's still able to like weave it together in a way that never takes us out of the story it it, it never feels like it's you know choppy uh it, it's right. just it's just very smooth uh very smooth writing very smooth storytelling and uh, it's very very beautiful stuff um but thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about what is really turned into uh you know if no one's bought into it yet uh this is <laughs> this is where the fun has already begun so um <laughs> but um but meg if uh if the listeners wanted to find you and your work and what you do on the internet. Could you tell them where they could do so? Absolutely. You can find me on Twitter at MacDowell, which is really where you're going to find oh, all of the things. Um, <laughs> mainly what I'm most excited about right now is all the work that we're doing at utini.com. Um, we are riding the High Republic hype train right now, um, for <laughs> sure. Um, we have guides going up on the characters, on the books. We have a, an entire page that lists all the High Republic books that have come out or that are coming out and when they're coming out um, and where you can get those. You know, Utini is just really, it's meant to be your place to come to find, you know, a community who just loves Star Wars stories. And, you know, we're open to all kinds of discussion, but like really our mission is just to like, you, there is something in Star Wars that everyone loves everyone has that one thing or there are multiple things and like we if we can help you find a story that incorporates that part of star wars that you love it just opens up a whole new world for you where you can you know find other books that are like that or stories that have those similar themes or are written by the same author or are in the same era and so that's really we're working on now we have so so many podcasts if you're into podcasts um (laughs) there's just if you like star wars books if you like star wars shows if you're just if you want more in-depth discussion of these stories utini.com you will find (laughs) all of the things um yeah and i'll be sure to post uh, links to your social media and your work and utini in the episode description you know you had mentioned way at the beginning of the episode about the really the the vast wealth of star wars books at our disposal uh Mm -hmm. at the tips of our fingers and it really seems that if anyone needs kind of like a guide through uh like a a tour guide through the museum of star wars books and i'm correct me if i'm wrong that both um both legends and canon right absolutely and i mean there are there are at this point hundreds and hundreds of star wars books and if you count comics well good luck um it's overwhelming it's overwhelming for me when i get into like for example a part of legends that i'm not too familiar with i'm like there is so much going on um so yeah like if you want to start or you want to get into a certain era or learn more about a certain character like definitely that's why we're here yep i I might need to um hit up that resource myself because you know i have read um i've been trying to read a lot of the canon material uh for you know for the show and just for Mm -hmm. you know trying to to stay with the with the kind of like the relevant storytelling you know where it's moving but i do want to get more into the eu uh, and the legends Mm -hmm. material so i know that uh (laughs) for a helping hand through and for a place to really start you know i've only really read i guess plagueis's uh is legends oh, now and the one. the original Thrawn trilogy but aside from that I need a, a jumping point in so I'll be sure to check that out and again I'll post uh, the links to 
Meg's work and Utini and her social media in the episode description. But Meg, thank you so much for taking the time to be on this show. This was an awesome time talking about Master and Apprentice. It really was. Thanks for having me. And before we wrap up today, I'll give our discussion question for these chapters. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan were startled to find that their lightsabers were useless against the Lunar Militant Group. As Meg pointed out, they were put on the defensive when one of their greatest advantages was taken from them. Do you think many Jedi would be able to adapt quickly like Qui-Gon did? Or is their confidence in their weapons sometimes misplaced? And listeners, I will post the question to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please send us a response on any of those platforms or by email to outerrimreadspod at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media to stay up to date on the show and our discussion questions, feel free to give us a follow on Twitter at Outer Rim Read Pod and on Facebook and Instagram at Outer Rim Reads Pod. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so if you head over to patreon.com slash outerrimreads. And if you want hoodies, t-shirts, stickers, and other merch, you can find us at teespring.com slash stores slash outerrimreads. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Gayhut, is hosted by Andrew Gayhut, is edited by Connor Floyd, and it is produced by Andrew Gayha as well as Simon Van Beckham. We'll be back in two weeks with episode 30. So until then, sit back and enjoy. Looks like Z-3PO has finished a pot of Chandrillan tea. Go grab yourself a mug and save some for Qui-Gon.